You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have an incredibly special guest. It is my pleasure to introduce DJ Kleinbaum, who's the co-founder and CEO of Emerald Therapeutics. He earned his PhD right here in organic chemistry in 2010, and right after, with, with a very longtime friend of his, went off and started Emerald Therapeutics. Emerald Therapeutics operates at the intersection of computer science and life science and dramatically streamlines laboratory research. I got a chance to visit last year when one of our Mayfield fellows was working there and I was blown away as a recovering life scientist. I was amazed at how they took the research that took me years to do and were able to do it in a few hours. So I'm sure you'll be as impressed as I am. Please join me in welcoming DJ. Thank you all for the warm introduction. I'm honored and humbled to be standing in front of you today because when I was here as a graduate student, it was very common for me to plan my experiments on Wednesdays around being able to sneak out of lab in the late afternoon to come to these talks. So it's a little surreal to be standing up here instead of sitting back there, but I hope to share with you some of my experiences from the last five and a half years or so with Emerald. So I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna just tell you stories about the founding of this company and the work that we've done and how we think about the future and just sort of go from there. Before I get into all of that, I just wanted to lay out to begin with the two themes that I'm gonna to touch on probably over and over again. The first is that startups are hard. They're not necessarily glamorous or temporal. If you look at the history of Silicon Valley, the companies that have really changed things, the Intels, the Varians, the HPs, did so not over weeks or months, they did so over decades. And I think that that's something that isn't always appreciated if you just look at these recent history of this area. So, Taking a much longer view is something that we've always tried to do at Emerald and something that I'm going to try to reinforce at a number of different points in my talk today. The other theme that I'm going to come back to several times is the focus not on ideas but on execution. I think that we all sort of love this idea of these sort of brilliant uh, individual who's you know just like generating ideas and that's what everything comes from but really if you're going to do anything significant it's much more about execution and you can sort of think of ideas as just a multiplier on top of your team's ability to execute so I would be remiss if I didn't start by acknowledging the amazing team that we have at Emerald and a lot of the things that you're going to see today are a result of their hard work with any company that has any sort of significant length story arc, the, it's only the first few chapters that really are about the founders. Every one of our team members that we've had during the company's history deserves a chapter in the story of this company. As it happens, the first chapter or two are about my co-founder and I, 
and that's where we'll start. So the, our company is called Emerald because in the summer of 1991, my family moved to a house on Emerald Drive that happened to be two houses away from where my now co-founder, Brian, and his family lived. So we've known each other since we were nine years old and have grown up together. And so one of the reasons that we have such a great working relationship is we've been doing this for the better part of two and a half decades. As we, when we were growing up, we heard all of these stories about the history of Silicon Valley and stories about the Trader Estate and Fairchild and these companies that were using technology to really change the, what our day-to-day -day lives were like. And also during this time, when we were in high school especially, we got very interested at this, about this intersection between computer science and the life sciences. But when we applied to colleges, most places that we went where we told them that we wanted to study at this interface, we wanted to double major in computer science and biology, they looked at us like, they were like we were crazy. Like, why would you study those two things? They don't really go together. So I, I feel very vindicated that the last two decades or so have more or less proven us right about the importance of that interface. But needless to say, we decided to both go to Carnegie Mellon because at the time, it was one of only two schools in the country that had an undergraduate program in computational biology. So we went to college thinking that we would use this time to learn more about this field and then start a company right when we left. And we had, you know, as we got toward graduation, we had an idea for a company, which in retrospect was a really bad idea. But nevertheless, we were talking to investors and entrepreneurs, mostly on the East Coast, and just sort of trying to figure out what we could do to get this company off the ground. And the thing that we heard over and over again was that no one will fund, let alone let you run a biotech company unless you have three letters after your name. So after hearing that once or twice or, I don't know, 27 times, we were just like, all right, screw it. We'll go get PhDs. So Brian went to Scripps Research in San Diego, and I came here to Stanford. And I was not a particularly, I did not have a particularly like, fantastic graduate career. I think my research advisor would agree with me on that. I was a pretty middling graduate student. But the thing that graduate school gave us was the better part of five years to vet dozens of different ideas for what our company would do. And not just what we would do, but how we would do it. We spent a lot of time thinking about what a research and development organization in the life sciences would look like if you were starting from scratch in the 21st century. And it was really useful during this time to be able to pick up the phone and call someone else, and especially after like a particularly bad day, and just say, I don't think the emperor is wearing any clothes. And have the person on the other line say, you know what, I think you're right. I do think it's ridiculous that we're using instrumentation that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the way that we save the data that comes off of this incredibly complex instrument is we print it out and we glue stick it into a paper lab notebook. Like having someone who would tell you that like, 
you're not that like you're not the crazy one everyone else is the crazy one is incredibly validating there's a big difference between being an individual you know in the room sort of like screaming that the world is mad and having someone else going like no i th- i think he is right so that was a really valuable experience for us and it can't be understated how how important it, how it can't be overstated how important it was to have someone there to have those discussions with. So we got toward the end of graduate school and again had an idea for a company and so we started talking to investors. And the thing that we found out very quickly was that it takes money to get lab space and lab space to get money. And we didn't have either of those things. So we ended up working out a deal in principle with our alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, because somehow there were still people there who remembered us fondly, and we had worked out a deal in principle for access to lab space and some shared facilities and equipment in exchange for what at the time was a trivial percentage of the company. And so we were all set to sort of go back and start this company in Pittsburgh. So Brian wrapped up at Scripps. I still had a couple weeks left final signatures to get and things like that here. And so he came up, crashed on my couch for as long as he could, but eventually my lease ran out. And so we moved into the a Motel 6 on El Camino, which has actually since been demolished. So you can't go find this building anymore. I think it's something else now. So So we were living at this motel and at this point we had sold or thrown out or given away anything we owned that wouldn't fit into our cars. And so we're just sort of like killing time while we're waiting to go back to Pittsburgh and literally on the day that we were scheduled to go back through one of our advisors we got a meeting with Peter Thiel. And we went and we were at this point you have to understand this is the summer of 2010 and so this was long before peter and his venture firm founders fund published their manifesto peter was mostly known as the you know the co-founder of paypal and for being the first investor in in facebook spacex had been successfully launching rockets for a couple years at that point but were not certainly did not have the public profile that they have now and so we were just kind of excited to meet him and to tell him about what we were working on and to you know get his feedback and then we were going to leave for Pittsburgh that day so we had this meeting with him at 4:00 and we were hoping to be on the road for Pittsburgh by 8:00 my goal was to get out of California that night it's like if we can get out of California tonight that'll be a good start to our road trip back to Pittsburgh and that'll be that'll be good that's what we're going to do and the the idea that we were pitching to peter is not the cloud laboratory aspect that you're probably familiar with the name of our company is emerald therapeutics and the original idea was this completely novel antiviral platform for curing persistent viral infections and that probably sounds extremely audacious and ambitious and it certainly was and i'm not going to go into the details of how it works but needless to say the work on it is going well and so we're we're pitching this antiviral company to peter and we get partway through the pitch and he stops us and he says i want i th- i think that this is a silicon valley company and i want you to give me a week to convince you that you should stay here instead of going back east and so we said okay 
and we went back to the Motel 6 and we booked another week and a week became two weeks and we ended up spending that entire summer living out of our cars and every cheap motel from San Jose to San Francisco while we went through diligence with Peter and Founders Fund. We pitched the deal to other VCs in the area and we sort of generally just sort of started to map out what it would be like to be based out here. So it was definitely, this was a, it's definitely a bit of a stressful time. So remember that we were right out of graduate school. It's not like we had a lot of savings. So we're doing this all on credit card debt and moving around from motel to motel every week. The, I'm sort of a operational efficiency nutcase, I think is the technical term. And the way that we would do things was we would, uh, we would live, we would book a motel for a week. We would, at the end of a week, we would move out. We would go to the Stanford Coin Wash, which still exists uh, on El Camino. And we would do a week's worth of laundry. And we would use Hotwire to book the next week's motel because we had figured out that a week was sort of the optimal time because if you did longer than that, the prices started to go up. And if you did less than that, then you were just moving all the time and that was not really sustainable. This laundromat was actually also our only real, this and Starbucks really were our only reliable sources of internet at the time. So it was not uncommon for us to do uh, video conferences with potential investors or potential hires from this laundromat. And we learned after like this, and it was also pretty common, at least on the weekends, for people to go there and literally wash almost everything they had on. So probably the second time that some half-naked person walked behind us on one of these conference calls, we decided that we should probably just save these for Starbucks. So we're, we're going through this, we're, we're sort of living out of these motels, and I would be lying if I told you, like this is a very fun story to tell now, but at the time it was really stressful. I mean, I literally had friends from high school and college calling me saying, hey, I heard you finished up at Stanford, what are you up to now? And the only honest response I could give them was, I'm homeless and unemployed. So th this is a picture that the reason that this picture exists is because one of my mantras during this time was I'll buy new socks when we raise funding. Um, so my clothes got pretty threadbare during this time. And at some point, Brian's car got broken into and they stole a bunch of his stuff. And I, it was just a very, it was a stressful time, both from a sort of professional standpoint and also from a financial standpoint, really. I mean, I made myself every day go onto my bank's website and check my credit card balance just so I never lost touch with that reality of like exactly what this is costing us. But it does have, there is like a happy ending to this part of the story. At the end of three months, we ended up closing around a financing with Founders Fund as the lead investor and one of the terms in the term sheet was that the company was going to, had to be based between San Jose and San Francisco. So it was sort of decided that we would be a Silicon Valley company at that point. So when we started, I still consider it a minor miracle that we were able to raise funding at all. And, but the amount that we raised was substantially less than you would normally raise for a biotech company as ambitious as what we were planning with Emerald. 
it was something like four to five times less than what you would typically do for a project like this. And we were kind of fine with that because remember, we had spent the better part of five years thinking about how we could more efficiently run a research organization. So there were two aspects to this initial lab that we built and the way that we were going to organize our company. So the first was automation. We were going to take every experiment and automate it to the point that it was push a button, walk away. And so for you engineers out there, that may not seem that revolutionary, but you have to understand that historically, scientific equipment is designed to have a person standing in front of the instrument while it's running. And so we decided, none of that for us. We are going to, we're going to make sure that the people that we hire are actually spending their time thinking about the science rather than babysitting machines. And we were helped in this endeavor by a lot of advances in the scientific instrumentation hardware business around something called high throughput screening. So high throughput screening is something that pharmaceutical companies do to test literally millions of compounds to see which ones are good leads for new drugs. The problem for us was that most of these instruments are meant, and more specifically, the software on most of these instruments is meant to do the same experiment a million times. But we weren't doing screening. We were going to use these for one-off experiments, which meant instead of having an instrument do the same thing a million times, we wanted that instrument to do a million different things once each. So that involved a lot of sort of fighting with and working around the instrumentation software. So, and that dovetailed nicely with the second, the second sort of key tenant of how we were going to run our company differently, which is that we were going to teach all of our scientists how to write software. And the reason that we wanted to do that, we were sort of, of course, trained in both of these things, but over you know, about 10 years, we had seen this growing divide as the data sets from scientific experiments got bigger and bigger. There, be, there started to be this divide between the people who generated data and the people who could analyze data. And that seemed like a really scary place to be. And it seems like the key sort of break point was once your data got too big to fit in Excel and it had to go into a database and now you need to write SQL queries, all of a sudden it went over the fence to a bioinformatics expert. And we knew that we certainly wouldn't have the headcount to have a totally separate department for that. And it just seemed both inefficient and just wrong to have the people who were designing and running the experiments not be the people who were analyzing them. So we taught everyone how to write software in a very high level language. We weren't teaching them how to do memory management or anything like that. We used what was then called Mathematica, what is now called the Wolfram language, which is sort of like the Cadillac of data processing languages. And it enables you to do some really powerful stuff in just a couple lines of code. So that was the, we have a, we had and actually still have a two to three week training class to sort of get people up and running in using this for analyzing data and doing other things that make people efficient scientists more efficient scientists. So one of the, the first thing that we did, so we had this team of you know, molecular biologists and chemists and geneticists, 
and we had taught them how to write software and just sort of like let them loose to build tools to not only do the research, but also build tools to make themselves more efficient. And so the first thing we did was we just built a database where you could push and pull data from any instrument in the lab. So that's in most labs where I worked, uh, the data from an instrument just lived on the hard drive where it was generated. And so now everything was pushed to a central database and then anyone could pull down and look at that data. But that wasn't enough. So we expanded that and we built this linked data system that where pieces of data were linked to the analysis that was done on them. And then over the course of about two or two and a half years, that just expanded to sort of consume all aspects of the lab. So it, that included inventory management, sample tracking, instrumentation diagnostics, and sort of the last piece of the puzzle to fall was protocols. So we started thinking of protocols as just more data. So our scientists would sit at their computers, they would design experiments, and they would design the experiments that they wanted to run, and then that would generate a machine-readable file that would get loaded onto the instrument in our lab, and then the only time you had to go into the lab at all was to make sure that that instrument had the, the samples were in the right place, and it had enough consumables, and the buffers were hooked up, and that was it. The instrument would then just run by itself, and you could actually focus on analyzing data from previous days or what your next experiments would be. And we started to see efficiency gains. Because our scientists weren't really spending time in the lab, we started to see efficiency gains, like people running five to seven times the number of, of experiments that I could run on like a given day as a graduate student. They were routinely doing that using this system. So at that point, we kind of looked around and said, there's way more value in this system than we can capture just by using it as an internal tool. We should make this available for all scientists so people anywhere in the world can use software to enter commands for experiments that will then get run at our central facility and then we'll just send them back the data along with a whole suite of tools for doing data analysis and visualization. So we, at that point, we actually reorganized the company. So it's very important to point out that we did not pivot. So we didn't go away from the therapeutic. We just added on, we branched. So we added another mission to the company and reorganized things such that we have our, and that exists to this day. We have our research team and we have our cloud laboratory team. And in many ways, the research team is sort of customer zero for the cloud laboratory. So we were really sort of like pushing at the limits of what we could fit into this small, into this small lab space. And so last year we expanded into a much larger facility in South San Francisco that we are still in the process of expanding both in terms of capabilities and capacity and trying to get to the point where we can, we can actually run experiments for larger and larger fractions of scientists. So that sort of takes us up to now. And so what I'd like to do in the second part here is just tell you some stories from both about building culture and around, and around just sort of more present day aspects of Emerald. So there are three things that I'm going to touch on. The first 
is the benefit of having a co-founder. The second is something that I call our contrarian truths. And the third is our fresh eyes journal. So before, to, to sort of understand the value of a co-founder, you have to understand risk. So every startup that's doing anything remotely innovative is inherently risky because there are a lot of smart people in the world and there are a lot of smart companies in the world. So just be, I think it's a, I think it's wrong to think that like large companies are not innovative or don't, or, you know, are somehow like not as open to change as, as others because there are really smart people that work at these companies. And so there's probably no idea that you'll have that someone else, probably someone at one of these giant companies hasn't already had. The difference between you as a startup founder, as an employee at a young startup, and them is that you said, I think that's a good idea. I think we should do that. Whereas they said, no way. Like, that'll never work, or that's a dumb idea, or it's like, it's not time for that. So that's really the difference, is that you, you decided, like, where everyone else said no, you said yes. And so that means just by its very nature, that you're going to be faced with some suboptimal sets of choices in your decision making because there's no, there's no sort of prescriptive path to startup success. You know, and that's very weird for people. It was kind of weird for me. So you, know, you go through high school, you, know, you do these things, you know, that will like, make you like, a successful high school student. Same thing in college, kind of the same thing in graduate school. But with a startup, it's kind of, there, is no, there is no formula that you can follow that will guarantee you success. And oftentimes that means that you're faced with a set of decisions and you have option A and B and what you really want is option C, but option C doesn't exist. And so it's really valuable to have someone who could say like, listen, both of these options are bad, but which one is the least bad? Like, and to be okay with have, to have someone tell you that it's okay to take a path that you know isn't great, but that you just sort of have to, it's sort of the reality of the situation that you have to take the sort of like route that you know is not optimal. So that's one of the really valuable things about having a co-founder, just someone who can sort of share that burden with you. And similarly, there's a time and if, any of you are thinking about or have started companies and you're lucky enough to have a good co-founder, you will have, I promise you will have this interaction where you will go to your co-founder and you will say, we are screwed. Like for reasons X, Y, and Z, we are totally screwed and like the, you know, the sky is falling and like this is it for us. And their they have one job in that situation is to say, it's gonna be all right, don't worry about it. Like here are the things that we're going to do. Like, just like, we'll get through this. Because that happens a lot. And all these things that seem like you know, dire situations end up not being, but when you're so invested in the company yourself, it really feels like everything is a crisis, especially early on. So again, your job as a co-founder is to say, it's going to be all right. One of the other things that I want to touch on is something that we call our contrarian truths at Emerald. And this sort of relates back to that idea of risk. So 
This is not sort of novel to me. I actually think this is something that Peter has talked about uh, publicly before, but it's very important for your company to define the things that make you different from the rest of the world. So by definition, you're clearly thinking about things differently or else you know, someone else would have probably already done this idea. You've already said like, I actually think this is a good idea. So that's, that's sort of the first thing that makes you contrarian. But the other, it's important to establish what those things are for your company and to get buy-in from everyone on those things. So I'm just gonna list the things that are our contrarian truths at Emerald. And it's imp you'll notice that there aren't any things here like quality first. Because quality first is, that's a great you know, mission statement to have or a great thing to hold up for your company, but it doesn't actually make you unique. The point of this exercise of sitting down with your early employees and saying, what are the things that we believe in these four walls that everyone else outside of them thinks we're crazy for, for thinking? And that's a, it's a really valuable exercise, and it's an important thing to point to as your company grows and matures to have this as sort of a cornerstone of culture. Unusual, they write it down. And then they're tasked with going and talking to other people at the company and saying, why do we do things this way? Like, what's our reasoning for doing this? And then once they do that, then they have to say like, okay, I, like, I understand that, I've like reframed that in my own words, um, but are there still remaining issues given that rationale? And if there are, they have to come up with some potential solutions. So what are some ways that we could, that we could fix this? What are some things that we could do better? And then after three months, they, that gets sent to me and my co-founder and also uh, their, their manager, and we read them. And reading these things is painful. And the reason it's painful is because, you know, when, you, when you're building a company, you grow to love it. And so you sort of apologize to yourself for its faults and you make excuses for it. And, you, and so having people point out to you the things that, you know, you can see are actually wrong with that thing you love is a very strenuous and stressful process, but it's also a really healthy one because it stops us from drinking our own Kool-Aid and from getting to this point where we're sort of in this echo chamber because everyone has just bought into everything or has sort of been bullied into like the way that we do things. So we found this to be an incredibly useful exercise. The one thing I will say is my, so my co-founder insists that if you decide to do this, that reading a fresh eyes journal has a two drink minimum. So, so you've been warned. So the last thing that I want to talk to you about is a little bit forward-looking. So I assume that all of you have heard of Moore's Law, right? Anyone not heard of Moore's Law? All right. So Moore's Law t tells about the, is about the density of transistors on microchips, but really you can think of it as describing the reduction in cost of these chips over time, of computing over time. Has anyone heard of E-Room's Law? All right, we have a couple. 
So Eroom's law is something that we have in the life sciences. And this comes from a paper that was published in 2012. But actually, we've sort of known about this for longer. Brian and I used to talk about this. It's kind of scary. So just to give you a sense, this has been happening since 1950. And now we're at the point where getting a drug developed costs on the order of $2 billion, depending on what study you read. So how can this be, have happened for 60 years? How has the industry not collapsed under its own weight? Well, it's because our spending on healthcare has also increased exponentially during that time. And the pharmaceutical companies can correctly say that they're only a tiny fraction of this problem, and they're right. But in 2004, our per capita spending on healthcare in this country was uh, $9,500 per person. Expert scientists to do research to discover new platforms so that we can help reverse this trend. So it's kind of a still kind of a downer note to to end a talk on, but I really want to. I, I hope that you've gotten the point from this that startups are hard. They are hard emotionally. They can be hard financially, and there are much more sort of like pleasant ways to live your life. But there are really difficult and really important problems out there that you can help solve. And if you think that you can contribute to fixing this or other problems like this, then it is absolutely worth it. Thanks. First question. Sure. So I don't know. Can you go back to the slide with the contrarian truths? Yeah. Because those are all really interesting. Maybe you could share um, a couple of them and give some insights on where they came from. Absolutely. So let's see. What are a couple of my favorites? So, so we'll just start with the first one. So one of the things that was very important to us when we were starting is that we were, going, we were not looking for people who were, we were not starting departments or hiring people to do a singular lab. You can, those are all variables that you can set using our software. Once you do, it goes into a queue at our facility. And once the instrumentation is available for that experiment, it gets run with every variable, every scientifically relevant variable being captured with robotics and automation. And then once that's completed, the data is sent back to you. And the software actually also has this very deep uh, data analysis, plotting, and visualization package. So you can actually analyze that data in a more high throughput manner. Yeah. I have a question. So you said at the very beginning of your talk that you went to get your PhD because they said that to a company you needed three letters after your name. Do you still think that's true? Absolutely. So the question was, do I still think it's true that you need three letters after your name, that you need a PhD to run a biotech company? I didn't think it then. I just understood the sort of reality of the situation. I think that the industry is, is starting to change around that, but by and large, it is more or less still the case. 
I think the thing that I've the thing that I've come to understand is that it's really much more about the types of the places that biotech and pharma startups usually come from is they typically get spun out of academic labs. They're not typically started by sort of like rogue graduate students or postdocs. So even if you have a PhD, trying to like start a company right out of school is relatively unusual. There are plenty of counterexamples to that, but I think it's still more the exception than the rule. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to know if, if E-Room's law continues, do you think that there will be a point, say, it costs $250 billion to approve a drug? Um, do you think at that point companies might start moving out of the United States to get it approved elsewhere because it's too cost prohibitive with the regulation system? Sure. So the question was, if E-Room's law continues, will pharmaceutical companies start moving out of the United States and getting approvals elsewhere? Is that a fair summary? So I, I, I really don't think so because the cost of the approval is only a small fraction of that. I mean, you can actually look at this and see the places where, uh, where sort of regulation got tighter, like in the late 60s with, with all the rulings around thalidomide. Like, uh, you know, you can see sort of like a sort of minor like change in the graph there. But this is not driven, this is not the FDA's fault. This is not a regulation, this is not purely a regulation issue. This is an issue with our ability to, to develop novel and viable drugs. So I don't think that a given day. And so when we went through that reorganization, first of all, it was relatively straightforward, like who fell on the sort of like therapeutic side and who fell on the cloud laboratory side based on sort of where their preferences to answering that question lay. And it made it really clear to people like what they were supposed to be doing on any given day. And so it was actually a very sort of, uh, it was sort of a relief, I think, for a lot of people because we had, even if we hadn't said that we were going to turn this into a commercial product, we were still building it internally. So from that perspective, not much changed except more clarity around like what your job really was. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, when, or if, or I suppose when, your uh, the the therapeutic portion comes up with your drug that's going to be awesome, I'm sure. Um, you'd like to use probably Emerald's like Cloud Lab or that kind of techniques to do all the quantification things you need to do in order to get the approval. Do you think that? you're going to have any problems being that different with when you eventually submit to the FDA? Or are they going to be happy with how you're running your experiments in your case? <laughs> I certainly think so. I mean, we're actually, from the cloud lab side of it, we're actually talking to a number of large pharmaceutical companies who are interested in working with us and in terms of like running their early experiments. And one of the really valuable things to them is that we have full traceability of all of our samples, all of the experiments, all of that is captured in code and in a database, which is far, which is extremely rigorous. And so we'll obviously have to have those conversations with the necessary regulatory agencies in advance of submitting anything through our system to them. But I think that the 
the sort of trace history and the the full like scope of being really able to track a sample through its entire lifetime is going to end up being valuable, not a liability in that in that scenario. Do you think they might end up uh, mandating or moving towards that model for everyone? So the question was, uh, do I think that regulatory agencies? Yeah. Um, you talk very positively about having a co-founder. Uh, would you recommend it to everyone, or were there also difficulties you had to face? Sure. So. I wouldn't necessarily recommend anything to anyone. One of the things that I've purposely tried to do today is to just tell stories, not give you advice. Whenever you know, we have some fantastic advisors and mentors, and I always find it much more valuable when people just tell stories, because advice is sort of codified scar tissue. Um, it's sort of like, I did this, uh, and it worked, so you should do this. Or I did this, and it failed horribly, so don't do that. Uh, so I can only tell you what my experience was. It's certainly been helpful to me and has kept at least some of my hair, as short as it is, uh, not gray. So I've had a very positive experience with it. I can't imagine ever starting a company without a co-founder, but that doesn't mean it's right for everyone. Yeah? I think it's very far from 1990 to 2000 that why did the cost of making a drug actually reduce? And if the industry is actually continuing to do that, yeah, so that actually, so you're talking about right here, correct? Yeah, so that was actually the, I believe that one, uh, I think that that dip in the graph was actually, there was a period where the FDA cleared a lot of pharmaceuticals much faster because many of them were early HIV drugs. So they were antivirals for preventing HIV. So there's this big push to get a lot of these through clinical trials. So there was this sort of anomalous dip in the graph from that sort of one time or few time event. Yeah. So how do you resolve um, the problem when your therapeutic side wants a new feature and your customers of your cloud want features and how do you prioritize the work? Sure, so the question is how do we prioritize work when our therapeutic side wants certain features, but external customers maybe want different features. We have a pretty holistic roadmap, and so we solicit input from all of our users, whether they be internal or external. I would say that at this point, the system for the internal users is pretty feature complete, given that they've been, it was sort of built for them from the start, and expanding to more types of experiments is something that we want to do for sort of everyone else, but the core set of experiments that we started with on the system were built so that the research team could operate in this way. So I'm curious about pricing of this. Sure. You know, is this something that you anticipate that even a graduate student would be able to afford running their experiments this way, or is this designed for big labs that have a big budget? You're obviously trying to keep the cost of developing new you know, treatment's lower, but, you know, is this something that you can afford to make at an affordable price? Sure. So the question is about uh, pricing and, like, whether or not a graduate student can afford to run experiments on this system. And the answer is it's really sort of up to you as the scientist. One of the things that's really important to us is that we're always goal-aligned with our users. So rather than just offering a price list, the price of running an experiment 
is really a function of the experiment you decide to run. So it's a function of the amount of instrument time you use, the amount of reagents that you consume, the amount of waste you generate, and the amount of setup time that your experiment takes. So you can run uh, scientifically identical experiments that cost dramatically different things on the system. So if you're willing to take the time to actually design efficient experiments, then it's absolutely accessible to uh, to someone like a graduate student. And furthermore, the really important thing for us in terms of cost is addressing the sort of total cost of doing research. So our, so the, the idea is to look at sort of your budget holistically and how much you can do, how much a single researcher can do with like a given budget. And from that standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint, I think we always win. Uh, uh, sure. What were your biggest lessons in um, recruiting and hiring? Yeah, that's a, so the question was, what were the biggest lessons in recruiting and hiring? So the biggest and probably most contrarian one was to be very wary of people with 4.0 GPAs or who have like ama an amazing publication record in graduate school, people who have sort of been unmitigated successes throughout their careers. And the reason is, and this isn't like a, it's not like we exclude anyone for this reason, but it does make us take sort of a, a harder look at a candidate because as, I've, as I hope you've gotten from this talk, startups are hard and we want people who can like persevere and who have grit and who aren't used to things working well for them. One of our, uh, one of our scientists had a pretty like, rough go as a graduate student, I think had like basically had two pretty major failed projects before the project that she actually like was sort of the cornerstone of her thesis. And that was like a huge, like that was a huge plus for us because, and she is like in, not only brilliant, but also like very tenacious and just like does not let go of things. And so that is really a huge value in an employee in a startup. So that's probably the, the thing that we look for the most. Yeah. So uh, during the startup phase, before you had an actual product, what was like the customer validation process like? Now, like how many people did you talk to and at what point did you decide that like this is what you need to do? Sure, so the question was what was the customer validation process like for the, for the cloud lab? So we sort of had, remember this was just an internal tool. So we started just building the things that we thought we, that we needed to run our own research. And the idea was that you would be able to hand this to another team of three or four researchers like our current research team is, and they could use it to you know, push a drug up into the point where it was ready for animal studies and clinical trials. So. I would say that it sort of came, you know, it was already pretty, we had a really good sense of the features that we needed because we just had to build them for ourselves. And since then, the other things we've added have been pretty obvious stuff like permission systems so that, you know, you can't see everyone else's data on the system. So we've certainly had conversations with early users and with, you know, we've had these conversations with folks that pharmaceutical companies and that has that has certainly uh, 
that has certainly helped set some of our roadmap, but a lot of it was just from our own, in our own experience as scientists, what we would want in this product. Yeah. Do you envision a future, and perhaps like how far into the future, when that facility that you show, for example, like there's just nobody is there, but just like, it's, you know, it gets the, through the internet, it gets an experiment, it runs it, it streams the data back and then it like cleans it up. Yeah. And like Google cars are like shipping the reagents <laughs> and you're just like on the beach yeah. in Costa Rica. I think it'll be I think it'll be a little while before we get to that point. The like internal like so everything that's scientifically relevant is always captured in robotics and automation in our lab. But the logistics are handled by our laboratory operations team, which works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to basically handle all those logistics that our scientists would handle before, making sure that the right buffers were hooked up to the instrument and that samples got to the right place. Because again, all of these instruments are basically built to have a person standing in front of them. And the robotics challenge of being able to get a plate of samples from any point in the lab to any other arbitrary point in the lab is extremely non-trivial and more importantly doesn't really add value to our user. Our goal at the end of the day is to build features that add value to scientists. And so making a lab that is totally automated and like has all these like robotics that are just shuttling things around might one day be economically viable. I think it'll be a very long time before that's the case. And that really, that's something that, you know, helps us, but that really doesn't help our user. It doesn't give them a better experience and make it easier for them to run more experiments or to run their experiments more efficiently. So we're much more focused on the things that improve the experience of doing science rather than um, making the lab sort of automated for the sake of being automated. I'm sure you'll agree this was incredibly impressive. Please join me in thanking DJ. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.